0: Hello and welcome to this brand new episode of Soundtracking with me, Edith Bowman. My weekly dive into the glorious world of film and music. It is a pool that I love to swim in. Sorry, that was terrible. Anyway, thank you very much indeed, I have to say, to everybody who's been incredibly supportive of our new little project with Everyman Cinemas. We've launched a film club with them. Uh, We've had a couple of events already. If you listen to last week's episode, you'll have heard the results of one of those events. And the idea is that we take a film and people associated with that film to a screen. Uh, We show the film and we either have a chat beforehand or after. And, you know, we're starting off and the idea is that we will hopefully get out and about to as many of the 42 sites that every man have up and around the country and maybe do some streaming and things like that. So we've already had a Saltburn preview, American Symphony preview, which I should definitely make sure that you know about and you get to watch when it hits cinemas, I think tomorrow, the 24th. And then... We've got two coming up before the end of the year. So our next event is going to be on the 30th of November at the Everyman Hampstead and it is going to be a 20th anniversary celebration of Love Actually. So that will involve a little pre-film event, not after but before the film, uh, which will be a celebration of the film. So confirmed so far, I have Richard Curtis hello, who's going to bring along some exclusive footage with him. Uh, so Richard's going to be there and then we're also going to have a little bit of live music because we know how important music was to that film and some specific needle drops and that wonderful Joni Mitchell song. I've got the fabulous Nell Mescal who's going to come and cover the Joni Mitchell song. So there may be some other special guests as well, but if you want to come along, then just head to our socials uh, to find out all the details. Then on Saturday the 9th of December at uh, Everyman Broadgate, we are going to be showing a preview of Priscilla and joined by Sophia Coppola for an in-conversation after the film. So those are our two everyman um events. Be great to get you along. As I said, all details can be found on our socials. Um there's a link on the um if you go to Link Tree on our Instagram page, it's all up there. So Come and join us. It'd be great to have you. But we've got another bonus episode of Soundtracking during this particularly busy time uh, as Todd Haynes returns to the podcast for a fourth time. I love this man. I love his films. Uh, And I love this new one because he's going to discuss May, December. It's deliciously dark and unsettling, beautiful drama with lashings of stunning observed comedy tells the story of an actress who travels to meet and study the life of the controversial woman she's set to play in a film with Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore exquisite in the leading roles. Interestingly, Marcello Zarvos' music is a reworking of Michelle Legrand's score for the 1971 film The Go-Between. And we'll begin with Marcello's cue, Driving to Gracie's. Todd. Hi Edith. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm really good. I'm really sorry I'm not there in person. No worries. Listen I want to say thank you first of all because this is your fourth visit to Soundtracking and it's it's so great because not many people (laughs) have that repeat with us and we're so grateful but it's just testament to how kind of prolific you are with your storytelling so it's wonderful to have you back. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure
0: oh man, I had a great time with your new film, made December. <laughs> I really like when I go into things, trying to avoid noise around it. So you just yeah. try and kind of step in, you know, as blind as you can be really to kind of fully experience it. And um, I didn't really know what to expect at all. And I laughed a lot. Uh, I just thought it was so unique. Um, I feel like I've not seen anything like this just in terms of the way that you've told this story and so much of that is through the way that you've used the music as well but congratulations first off. Thank you Edith, it's so cool. Thank you. How did this story kind of come to you and what was the what was the appeal for you to explore the story in these characters?
1: It came in the most um consummately conceived script that I'd read in a long time. And one of the reasons Edith we've been able to see each other more frequently as i've been making movies more frequently all the films that i began my career with i i wrote and directed and did the research and i loved that process i still love the research and all of the process that still goes into films that i don't write that i don't initiate Mm. but it meant that there would be like five six seven year gaps from film to film you know especially with promoting them which is also an important part of the indie film cycle. But at, around, uh, I did. I adapted Mildred Pierce from the novel by James M. Kane for HBO in um, 2011 with my writing partner John Raymond in um, Portland. And after that, I was like, "Wow, that was an that was an amazing different experience in adapting a novel and staying very true to the novel in ways the original uh, Joan Crawford film did not." Yeah, and. Then there was this script that had been circulating of Carol. Uh, it was Price of Salt, Patricia Highsmith's novel, and it was being produced at that point, carried around and trying to get made by one of my dearest and oldest friends, Elizabeth Carlson, who's an English producer. And I, Christine, Liz said to Christine, do you think Todd would ever consider directing something that he didn't write? And they sent me the the project. I read the novel and I read the um, Phyllis Nage script. And I was like, this is... This is really special. And I'd never really mm. done what I considered at that time a love story before. Yeah. So once the little gate gate is open, the door is cracked open, and a director <laughs> like myself is interested in reading scripts, I get a lot of stuff sent. Or at yes. least my agent reads and filters a lot of stuff. So this one, so I was looking at a lot of stuff. It was right at the height of COVID. I read the script, but this script cut through the noise like... Mm like few others I had seen. And I started to talk to Natalie about it. It was Natalie who sent it to me. And she was, we basically assumed she'd be playing that character, Elizabeth, the younger, yeah. the two central lead characters. And I had never worked with Natalie before. We discussed it in the past. And this just seemed like the absolute opportune project. And in talking to Natalie about what was so interesting and disquieting about the script, and even her own enthusiasm in eliciting projections people might make onto watching Natalie Portman play an actress and thinking, ah, I wonder if that's how Natalie Portman really is as an actress. And this is a disturbing (laughs) Is that what she does for every film? (laughs) Right. Exactly. And Natalie was like, I love this. Bring it on. She was just bold and fearless. And I was like, she reminds me of somebody who I know very well who likes to take those kinds of risks and engage in those gray areas in their work. And here was the second role of a woman hovering around 59, 60 years old, which is rare to begin with to have those two kinds of female characters at this film like this. So very quick for me to go to Julianne Moore and offer that role.
0: The electricity and the kind of uncomfortableness between moments that they're on screen together is so fantastic to watch and just almost the the energy that you almost kind of feel them pulling towards each other but there's very few films I can think of where you have two kind of female leads really who are kind of flawed both flawed characters who have this kind of you're never really quite sure what the relationship is where it's going there's just so much ambiguity about it that's so thrilling and brilliant and draws you in um, and there's very few films like that, and I think that that's one of the many reasons I love this so much. I mean, I thought about persona was something that I kind of really thought about just in terms of it's it's really kind of thriller esque at times. I think, yeah. particularly those scenes in front of mirrors and things. I don't know you and the and the ladies must relish those opportunities to kind of have those moments.
1: Absolutely, it, it's also strange how much it's a film about female desire. Being the driving force and the collateral damage-inducing force for both female characters, yeah, and the men yield to the women in their respective stories. That already, I've made many films about female characters and domestic stories and settings. It's very rare, and and a bit, um, you know, exotic. I would say to have a film driven by that kind of willful female desire and then and then the sort of competition and the, and the and the and the power interplay between the two characters and you know moments where you think an intimacy might be forming or yeah. or breaking down between the two of them but the script keeps shifting mm-hmm. gears in these nuanced ways right and the yeah. actors so much to work with that was could also be depicted with great understatement. And then all of a sudden there would be overstatement. So it's a the tonal shifting of what's said, what isn't said, the silences between things that are said, combined with things that I brought to it, like the music and the oh. and the framing that that is entirely inspired by, as you say, the sort of Bergman simplicity of the extended Single shot and the direct address to the lens in the mirror scenes—all those things, uh, I think, keep the the uh, uneasiness and the sense of suspense alive as you watch it.
0: When Julianne's doing her makeup, and then when they're, you know, when she's putting her makeup on as well—that's an extraordinary scene. And then when they're in the restaurant toilet, and then yeah. Natalie's monologue as well—it's just all these intimate moments where majority of the time it's the two of them, and then when that moment comes. With Natalie, you're just kind of like, whoa. It's almost (laughs) kind of Shakespearean in a way, you know, in terms of like a kind of Greek tragedy in a way, you know, in terms of like how she's almost been like this character that she's researched and has almost kind of embodied her and kind of almost sort of weirdly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I also it's that's so interesting. And also this way that even the the backstory that we kind of had to kind of concoct for ourselves based on some research we'd done and really interesting conversations with Julianne Moore and and instincts with her that were absolutely certain about how that original relationship with her and Joe could have begun began. Yeah. Had this sense of it being kind of like this myth of the princess in the castle and the Greco-Roman knight in shining armor, the virile young man who's going to rescue her, that endows each side with a sense of erotic motivation, yeah. but also denies the age and power difference in that yeah. in that myth. Again, kind of, yeah, like a Greek drama. We all have myths about our relationships and our narratives of who we are or were, where we met our partner and blah, blah, blah. And this is a particularly deranged one, of course, but But I think the the whole movie revealed to me, although this was an exotic case of all these extreme transgressions occurring, I loved how it was also about how how we survive by denying our choices and willfully never looking back and questioning them, even when we're not happy in our lives.
0: Yeah. I mean, you have that wonderful scene with Julian and Charles, you know, where he's kind of towards the end where he says, you know, he wants to talk about it. He wants to address it. And yeah. she's kind of like, she's kind of, she's not going there yeah, at all. And Charles is brilliant in this as well. I mean, not an easy character to get with really, in terms of, but I just thought he's, he absolutely smashed it out of the park. Really. I thought it was just a great, yeah. He was the great final piece to the triangle, I think in a way, he was great. The music is so brilliant and the way that it kind of stabs in. And I really mean this as a compliment. So please, I'm saying this ahead of it. But for me, I had those kind of, it had like a kind of, you know, like sort of certain music around TV movies sometimes can come in where it over-dramatizes things. Did you in any way kind of lean into that in a way to add, because I just feel it had that kind of in a good way, you know, I'm not kind of trying to diminish it,
1: but but yeah, talk to me
0: about the music.
1: I wasn't thinking of TV movies or particularly in stylistic uh, terms, making it, because I, I I saw the film where that music, where that score was written for the Go Between, yeah, just last year. I I think I saw it when wow. I was, it was came out in 1971. It might be more better known in the UK as an English film, but it in America it has not. It's just out, fallen out of circulation.
0: It's a Julie so, Christie film, yeah,
1: yeah, Alan yeah, yeah, yeah. Julie Christie, Joseph Losey directed. Harold Pinter wrote the script. It's a shocking film to not be better known. It was nominated for Best Picture. It won the Palm d'Or in Cannes. It, it was like a highly respected movie at the mm. time. I remember the post, the graphics in the newspaper for the ads. But I saw it on Turner Classic Movies last year. Uh, it's an amazing film, mm. but the music knocked my socks off. I was completely astonished by it. It's not like any score. Of a lousy film, any score I've heard Michelle Legrand write. Yeah. As you say, it slaps you or not. However you said it, it it is. It like slaps you silly right from the beginning of the film. And it puts you in a state of going, what is coming? (laughs) You're reading, you're anticipating everything, right? Yeah. (laughs) And I love that. That was just so exciting and juicy and strange, you know, and excessive. So that's where it all came from. But of course, yes, it, it does, it does sort of have a conversation with the tabloid past that this that is the backstory of this movie where you mm. see a snippet of the TV movie and you're watching the casting of these way too young boys for the movie they're gonna make and the whole <laughs> you know, the whole reevaluation yeah. and almost repetition of this story is getting, played out while this music keeps banging away at you. So, so I found this music, I said to my, we had a very short schedule. We shot the movie in Savannah in 23 days, incredibly short. What? So every, every second counted. It meant that the communication between all my creative partners and my actors had to be just, I just decided, open the doors, <laughs> share everything, bring everybody into the process. So they, I usually share my image book, but I was now sharing it with this music saying, play the Michelle Legrand score while you look at the images. And then I just, on the plane to Savannah, I placed all the cues of that entire score through our script. Wow! As soon as we started to shoot the film, we played the music scene by scene by scene. When there was dialogue, we turned the music down so they could do their dialogue, turn it back up. So everybody was living and breathing this, this, this tone, this this this, this framing. Together. And it also just brought us more closely together. The film ended up being one of the most joyous filmmaking experiences I've ever had. And I truly thought this is so much fun. The movie is going to suck. (laughs) Because there's no way we could have this much (laughs) fun. Right. Because you know, we're all too whatever. Protestant Should it be or, this much fun? Yeah, we have to <laughs> suffer for our art, whatever. But I thought, I don't care. I would not trade this experience for the world. It was so stimulating for everybody involved. When it ended, we were all like, at the wrap party, it was like, I just don't want it to be over. I want it to keep going, you know. So the whole thing was a was a really excellent collaborative um, journey.
0: So with that music then, was it an easy you know, because you worked with um, Marcello Zarvos to kind of, you know, yeah. what was the so you know you 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 decide that and this very is very a- good
1: question because I Marcelo Zarvos is one of the great composers. I loved working with him the last on my last on Dark Waters when I last worked mm. with him. He's an amazing uh, composer. As soon as I found the score, I sent it to, in pre-production. I was like, Marcello, this is what we have to do, and he was like, "Holy shit, this is so." Amazing! Like it blew his mind. He was like, "Oh my god, this breaks every rule of what I've ever done in a movie." <laughs> and I just, I was hoping he would just send us little, you know, sketches while we were shooting, and we could just play those. And but we just the DNA of the film just got fused to that score, or at least yeah. that melodic signature, so much. Marcelo added and wrote a, original music to fill it out the tonal elements, and then he ultimately rearranged the legrand opposition and we re-recorded it with the Prague symphony orchestra couldn't afford the london (laughs) symphony orchestra uh masters and i wouldn't have wanted that like he Mm -hmm. marcello made it so much our own ours you know absolutely written for and measured for this film so that was a process for sure
0: Yes, it's not. It's not a totally unique thing where there's something existing that's used in a you know musically in in a film sort of thing. But for a for an existing score for a film where the subject matter of the original film has got a connection to the story in your film, you know, we we talk about kind of um, you know in the world it's all about kind of I don't know. Find an inspiration from such unique and brilliant ways and retelling stories, but also really drawing people's attention to things that they might have not missed. I have a big problem where people kind of go, you know, if you say you haven't seen a film or listened to an album and they kind of roll their eyes at you, it's like, it shouldn't matter when you come to things. Exactly. So long as you've come to it some point and are moved by it or have some connection to it, oh. it doesn't matter. I think it's a wonderful thing that you've, that this piece of score you know, really inspired you and connected with your film, that it may now encourage people
1: to go back and watch that film. Isn't that a
0: wonderful thing? I'm
1: always I'm always jealous of people who are like, I never saw Nashville. And I'm like, (laughs) what? oh, my God, you're so lucky. Or or it's like when my friend, one of my dearest friends, one of the most brilliant women I know in my life, I went to high school with. She went to college when I did had a kind of emotional meltdown that first semester of college because it's a tough transition she dropped out. She continued, she started to get jobs and work, work, work her whole life, right? And move up and made money and had found a a partner and all this. And then at age 40, her partner was in a position to say, Camden, you can go back to school now. So when she was in her forties, she went to the new school in New York. And I was like, damn, could you imagine going to college, going to undergrad at like the new school in New York city in your forties when you have learned so much about the world and you're ready to and she did she had the most extraordinary i mean i i'm i'm i i knew when i was in college that it was special and i yeah. stretched it out i knew that much that much i knew at the time when i was young but i but what she had it was like it's just an example of what you're talking about
0: yeah i think that's so true it's kind of i almost feel like you like i've got a 15 year old kid and he's you know going through exams and things and thinking about going to uni and stuff like that and it's kind of like can I come with you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know. I, really, I want to feed my brain. You know, there's I so know. much that I want to like. It's it's kind of, yeah, we should be, yeah, I think given the opportunity, it's like go out and work and then come back and do you yeah. stuff thing a few years exactly. later. It'd be, it'd be such a great thing. There's a moment as well, just another before we run out of time, that I, I wanted to, that really kind of was like, made me sort of like, oh, amazing. Was Was that moment post-graduation where the two characters, have the little chat and Julianne reveals something to to Natalie's character about, you know, a conversation that's been had. And you're like, oh, my God, such a great moment. And you can see, you can see she's broken by it almost in a way. And she's kind of like, like you can almost see her sort of almost sort of fall down with the kind of realisation that she's been kind of slightly hoodwinked. And I love that moment so much. And I particularly just loved the way that, Julianne delivered it, but also Natalie's response to it in a physical way as well as a kind of emotional way. I thought it was an amazing moment in the film.
1: No, I know, with that, and I know you're being careful to not give too much Yeah, to
0: spoil. Yeah. talk
1: about it in detail, but I think in general, something that moment reveals is a theme throughout the film where, and it was something that really interested me in the script from the beginning, was that even though this is this crazy, exotic, extreme case that happened 20 years ago. The movie is so much about how we all refuse to revisit the choices that we we, we make in life and can't really look at ourselves or question ourselves. And here comes this actress who's going to like knock down the walls and find the truth and yeah. penetrate all the repression and all the blockades. And she also comes with this privilege with being an actor and coming from mm. the West Coast and all this stuff. You presume that she has all the power and all the agency and that the truth is the power or something, Mm. even if we're questioning what that truth really is, until that moment you're talking about or those examples that you're talking about where you realize it's the person who puts up the wall who is the powerful one. Mm. And that's a very disturbing thing to think about, that repression and denial are more powerful than truth-seeking. Yeah. And in a way, that's the, one of the ways the battle of wills is getting played out in this in this film between these two women.
0: I also felt like the film threw up so many questions as well, which I love kind of coming out of a film and, and wanting to sit down for like two hours and just go, but what are you, you know, that kind of, it's, it's so lovely when you're inspired to, to converse coming out of a film and this film definitely did that. And, you know, whether that's about, characters or you know the kids how do the kids feel you know what are they going through what's their response or you know how does she feel about that decision that they made how does he feel about that decision they made and stuff and it was just joyous to kind of feel that way and 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 i don't know if i don't know if that's a thing that that you go into a film when you start making it in terms of wanting people to ask questions at the end of your film
1: you you couldn't have Pose the question more cogently to how I felt uh, when I read that script, which made me want to make the film. Which was awesome. that um, this is what cinema is to me. It's it's taking you somewhere where you're not, you don't understand where you're going. You haven't gone there before. You're not prepared entirely for the experience. It's beyond your control or your preset ideas about this or that, which we love to hold up today as Mm -hmm. a sort of test for how the world is going to like satisfy what we already think. And this movie just disturbs all of that. And to me, that's what I loved about movies. And those were the films that were that I when I was coming of age in the 60s and 70s and seeing movies, every movie was like really any movie you can think of from the classic era of Hollywood on is a movie that makes you think about it. Yeah. Yeah makes you want to talk about it and want to see it again, you know, and sometimes you don't even have words for the questions that you have about it, but you still want to see it again. It just you in all these different ways. And this movie just did that at a time that I just wasn't sure the climate of um, audiences and, you know, was necessarily going to dig that and what's been great so far at least is that that has been a pleasure for people yes. watching watch the movie, not an obstacle.
0: Todd, such a pleasure getting to chat to you again, really, really is. Um, congratulations on the film and um, I look forward to, to the you. next chapter as well. Hope you take time. care. Lovely to see you. Bye. From Marcello Zaravossi's score to May December, that's Elizabeth Visits School. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the wonderful Todd Haynes. My huge thanks to Todd for taking the time to talk to us. May December is in cinemas now with a release on Sky Cinema on December the 8th. If you'd like to listen to my previous conversations with Todd, head to edithbowman.com where you can also find every single episode of the podcast. Follow us on our socials. We are at Soundtracking UK and we also have a YouTube channel where you can find loads of extra content from the regular podcast, but also exclusives, including my chat with Tom Hiddleston talking all things Loki series two. It's our 400th episode next time out and what better way to celebrate that occasion than with the wonderful Mark Ronson who joins me to discuss his work on Barbie. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.